Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Here's Jesus speaking here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish again than for your whole body to be cast in hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, I say, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. This is the word of God, and these are the words of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for this gift. As we're thinking about your faithfulness, God, I don't know if there is a more tangible expression in our lives today of your faithfulness than the gift of your faithful and true word. We thank you for it. We ask today that you would guide us, that you would speak to us. Lord, I I have to pray humbly and ask each and every Sunday, God, that you would use me, uh, knowing how impossible the task is before me to do on my own, God, to to be used by you, Lord, to minister and to encourage your people. This is only the work of your spirit. So I invite you to fill me with your spirit. Get Andrew just out of the way. May, May none of us see him today. May we get a glimpse of you. May we hear from you. Lord, use me to speak to us. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, and I genuinely ask God for you to speak. Uh, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to each of us individually, and of course, uh, for what you want to say to us as a church collectively. So we give you the room to speak to us. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, quite a passage that we read there that might seem all over the place, but I think we could nail it down here with a single thought that kind of ties these three sections together. And so with that, I'll give you the title. The title of my message today is simply Greater Faithfulness. Greater Faithfulness. Uh, Remember, in this section, Jesus is seeking to lead his followers into deeper righteousness. That was the context we had here. Jesus talks about the righteousness of his followers exceeding the cultural righteousness of the Pharisees. And those looking on were thinking, man, if that's what it takes to get to heaven, it is impossible. No one can enter heaven if that's what it means. And that's certainly true. Nobody could be righteous enough on their own to get to heaven. And Jesus will 
ultimately point us to the righteousness that is greater than any human righteousness, um, and it's the righteousness that's received as a gift through faith. Uh, But he's also leading us into a greater practical righteousness. As the righteousness of the Pharisees, what we've been seeing here is very to the point, and it's very uh, jot and tittle. It's very, you know, as Jesus uses that expression, it's very surface. It's very like, okay, well, I kept the bare minimum, so I'm good enough. But Jesus wants us to experience and be models and examples and live lives of a deeper righteousness. Not just I kept the rules, but righteousness at a heart level. And here in this passage, you could say that what deeper righteousness looks like is greater faithfulness, okay? So that's kind of where he's leading us, into deeper righteousness that looks like greater faithfulness. Not just faithfulness to do what we're supposed to, I did it, I'm faithful, but faithfulness even at a heart level. We see it there in verses 27 through 30. You could define that section as Jesus leading us into sexual faithfulness, The idea there is faithfulness in our sexuality, simply, right? Uh, Second section there, verses 31 through 32, Jesus is talking about covenantal faithfulness. That's faithfulness to our marriage vows and what we've committed to within the covenant of marriage and the vows and the promises we've made. And then lastly, verses 33 through 37, as Jesus is talking about oaths and promises, he is leading us into a greater verbal Faithfulness. The idea there is being faithful to your word, being faithful to what you've said you would do. So ultimately, again, faithfulness. Now, uh, it's definitely a big word, faithfulness, but it has some simple ideas attached to it. There's not, I don't think, uh, I don't think there's one single definition uh, to describe what faithfulness is, but I I just want to give some synonyms to the word faithfulness to help us think about where God is leading us. Faithfulness. So you can think of these four words to kind of encompass faithfulness. Some words that might make us understand this is somebody or something being reliable, trustworthy. Somebody's faithful, they're trustworthy, they're worthy of your trust. They have a proven character. Or firm, I like that, firm, not shaky, not unsure. And lastly, true. So reliable, trustworthy, firm, and true. I know each of us can think of like one thing in our house or one of our possessions that has just been faithful. You know, there's some things in my house that I've had to replace like eight or nine times uh, over the past 10 years or so. There are some of my possessions that are built to last, but, but don't make it very long. Uh, and then there's other things that you don't expect that you're like, how is this thing still working? Do you have anything like that? It's just reliable, trustworthy, firm, and true. For me, at home, it's my toaster. I have a faithful toaster. We've gone through, I think, three sets of appliances, Brittany and I, in the past 11 years of, of, of life together, but we've had the same toaster. We got this toaster through our wedding registry, okay, in like 2009, and this thing is a brave little toaster, okay? This thing is a faithful little toaster. We, we use it more than, I think, any other cooking, uh, just as much as our stove and our oven. The kids are, have now learned to make, you know, their waffles in it and uh, butter toast, and so, man, the, this reliable, trustworthy, firm, and I don't think I'll ever have to buy a new toaster. I'll have this thing for 30 more years, hopefully. All right, now... This, is, uh, this idea of being like my brave little toaster, okay, of being reliable, trustworthy, firm, and true, standing the test of time is an idea that we see all throughout 
Scripture. And here's the big idea that we see regarding faithfulness in Scripture. I want you to understand this, okay? Here's what Scripture teaches about faithfulness as it pertains to humanity and God. In Scripture, we see that faithfulness is an attribute of God, but often a rarity among men. Faithfulness is something that God has in abundance, but it's something that we often find man having in short supply. It's an attribute of God. 1 Corinthians 9, God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Even here, Paul says, the, the very means through which and reason for you being in the family of God and being called into the family of God is because of God's faithfulness. We, we started our whole worship service today with Lamentations 3, where Jeremiah proclaims, great is your faithfulness. God is faithful. The Bible says that even when we remain, even when we're faithless, for, uh, 2 Timothy 2.11 says, this is a faithful saying. A faithful saying is that God is always faithful. God is, you could say, always reliable, trustworthy, firm, and true. It's an attribute of God, faithfulness. Yet, as I said, it's often a rarity among men. Proverbs 20 verse 6 says that most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? This is a reference that I, I go to at almost every single wedding that I officiate as I am helping the bride recognize the gift that she's received in her husband. Um, and most of the time, I get to say this with complete sincerity, as um, that's usually the, the, the basis through which I'll actually marry the couple, is I, I see that there's faithfulness in the covenant, and especially for the husband. I'll often say at the wedding, I'll say, listen, I'll, I'll quote this verse and I'll say, it's not hard to find a guy who won't brag on himself. That's not hard. That's actually what the Proverbs say. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness. Okay? It's not hard to find a dude, a Chad or a Brad, who's like, I'm the man, all right? Most men will proclaim each his own goodness. The question isn't, can you find a man who will brag on himself? The question is, can you find a man whose life speaks for himself? Who can find a faithful man? In other words, it's hard to find and all the girls are like, amen, all right? But, but you get the idea here, right? Who can find? It's a rarity among men to find a faithful man. In fact, there's this incredible scripture in Second Chronicles that describe the Lord's own search for faithfulness. Second Chronicles 16.9 says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him, reliable, true, and trustworthy. Uh, imagine this, God is searching the earth. Imagine right now, he's searching your neighborhood, he's searching our city, he's searching Florida, he's searching our country, and his eyes are searching for those who are faithful. Why? So that he can show himself faithful to and through them. And what an invitation. Uh, I want to remind us that faithfulness, though it is a rarity among men, it is something that God is seeking to produce in our lives. Uh, God is always seeking to, gr to produce a greater faithfulness in our lives, that we would be those that he finds as faithful. In fact, it's Galatians 5.22 that says that the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. 
So, so if God is at work in, in your life, if he's growing you and shaping you and changing you, one of the, the visible evidences of that work in your life is going to be this fruit of faithfulness, that people are going to look on at you just as the Lord is searching, and they're going to go, man, this is a rare thing. This guy is faithful. This person is faithful. They are true, reliable, trustworthy, and firm. You get the big idea, all right? And so here in this section, Jesus is helping us along that path of greater faithfulness. And there are so many different implications of this. There's so many other points of faithfulness, right? You could talk about faithfulness in the workplace. Uh, you could talk about faithfulness in your homes with, with how you're present as parents. You could talk about faithfulness in your integrity. But there are three specific areas that Jesus deals with here, as I already mentioned. Uh, we talked about sexual faithfulness, marital or covenantal faithfulness, and verbal faithfulness. So let's look at each of these areas and allow Jesus to draw us closer and bring us farther along into a greater level of faithfulness as we allow him to form us through his word. I just pray, God, that you would do that now as I teach these points. All right, the first one that Jesus touches on, as we read there, is sexual faithfulness. That's the first area of faithfulness, and I'll be using that word faithfully here in this time. The first uh, section here deals with faithfulness in our sexuality. Uh, now, what we have here in this passage of Jesus talking about adultery, lust, it seems like self-mutilation, plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand, we'll talk about that, and hell, what Jesus is talking about here is his own vision, Jesus' own vision for sexuality. Now, I think it's really important, before you just dive into the words here in Scripture with our own Christian uh, presuppositions, our own ideas that we come to this passage with, it's really important to back up for a second and just be reminded of the fact that Jesus has, in and of himself, Jesus has a theology of sexuality. This is really important, okay? Because if we're talking, he's talking about unfaithfulness, so there's got to be some standard that you can be faithful to. This is so important for us, especially as those living in a culture that is a post-sexual revolution uh, age of individualism. Let me unpack that a little bit. We live in a culture that is post-sexual revolution, and it's an age of individualism, that I am my own authority, and I am not bound by any traditional standards of sexuality. I am free to follow whatever my heart or flesh craves or my heart desires. We live in an age where, ironically, sexuality means both everything and nothing at the same time. We live in a day and age where sexuality, our sex lives, mean everything and nothing at the same time. It, it means everything in this culture. You don't need me to prove this point, okay? We understand that sexuality drives everything in our culture. Sexuality drives the marketplace. Sexuality drives entertainment. Sexuality dri drives pop culture. You have sex appeal and sex symbols. Uh, sexuality drives the economy. I mean, we're talking about a consumer product that is clearly America's most favored pastime, okay? Uh, sexuality is the god of our culture. 
The statistics even 10 years ago showed that just with pornography alone, there was more money spent than on the NBA, MLB, and NFL combined. The amount of underaged and exploited young girls in our culture that are commoditized for sexual pleasure has created this billions of billions of dollar industry. You see whole marriages that are destroyed because one person bowed down to worship the God of sexuality. In our culture, sexuality is everything. We um, foolishly, we will give up everything for sexuality and in the end be left with nothing. But that's how it is in our culture. Sex is everything. So much so that, listen, if you're not having sex, we got a problem. That's a problem. I remember, you know, being at that stage or a new believer walking right with the Lord and Brittany and I, we set our, our hearts and our minds on, on honoring God and, and wanting to experience his best gift in sexuality. And I remember working my little retail job, being the only Christian there. And it was like when I, we kind of, that eventually would be asked, you know, eventually it would come out. And it wasn't like I showed up like, hey guys, you know, me, me and my girlfriend aren't having sex. How's it going? You know, it wasn't like that. But once that was surfaced, it was like something's wrong with you right? We even use that as an expression, like if someone is, it's kind of a cultural thing where if someone's like really angsty and angry, we're like, oh man, they haven't gotten laid in a while. We kind of use that kind of language. We kind of think about sexuality as the, um, as the fulfilling uh, missing piece of all of our lives, that once you have the right kind of, not just have sex, but once you have the best kind of sex, once you get the best kind of experience, then you'll be fulfilled, then you'll find what you're looking for. Uh, it's been, dis- I've heard it described this way. We kind of study this in Ecclesiastes, but uh, you know, life can, it, it, without Jesus, life is like a symphony that never reaches that peak point of fulfillment. It's like a, a song that you're waiting to build into this moment of joy and celebration, but it just kind of falls flat. You hear the notes, and, but there's never this, this this moment of fulfillment, and, and a lot of people look at sexuality as that note, as that one thing that will give me what I'm looking for. In our culture, it's important for us to see Jesus' vision for sexuality because in our culture, sexuality means everything. Yet at the same time, it means nothing. It means everything and nothing at the same time. There's no necessary significant value to sex. I mean, it means everything, but it doesn't matter how many people you have it with or how you engage in it or how you fulfill your sexual desire. There's no, there's no real consequences. The idea is it's, very, it's just nearly, merely physical and, and emotional, but there's no soul level connection in sexuality. There's no uh, spiritual consequence or effect in sexuality. The idea is there's no standard even. It's nothing. It's just like eating. It's just a, a desire. You just fill that desire. It doesn't matter who you have it with, how you have it, where you do it. It doesn't matter. It, it's just this craving, like an animalistic instinct. There's nothing sacred. It's everything. It's God in our culture. But it's also not sacred at the same time. Now, it's in this culture and even in that day, in that culture, that Jesus speaks with great clarity and power with a vision for what God intended with sexuality. And we even see it implied here in this passage. Jesus talks about the idea of like 
breaking the sexual vision, being unfaithful to the sexual vision through adultery, which implies that there's a right way to do sexuality. If adultery is the wrong way, okay, there's the right way, which is within the gift of covenantal union. That's what what Jesus understood sexuality to mean. It definitely meant more than nothing. It was something sacred, yet it certainly meant less than everything. It wasn't meant to be worshipped and served as a God. Jesus will hearken back, even in Matthew 19, to God's intention in the beginning when God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, and one of the gifts that he gave man and woman and husband and wife for their marriage and for their relationship was the gift of relational intimacy. The two we see in Genesis, they become one and they are physically connected. Adam knows his wife Eve in a more intimate and greater way that without that sexual intimacy, it wouldn't be there elsewhere. And I realized just now that we probably should have done like, hey, PG-13 message today, by the way. So if you're watching on your big screen, maybe turn it down, put headphones in, or, or watch this later. Just a little uh, side note there. Uh, but we see there from the very beginning, God's intention, uh, God's perspective with sexuality was it was to be a gift, a gift for, for husband and wife to experience covenantal union, greater oneness, greater intimacy, to be naked and unashamed, to be fully known within the confines of marriage. Now, the idea in scripture about two becoming one and that experience of oneness is the idea that within the right context, within the right context, sex within the context of marriage, sexuality is life-giving. It's what it's intended to be. Within the right context, life-giving. Um, there's nothing more life-giving than the security of love. Knowing that I don't have to be on my best hair day, keep my best foot forward for you to love me and accept me. You know what that's gonna lead you to do? It's gonna lead you to be open and honest and vulnerable. That's what intimacy is, two people fully knowing each other. And that's what the gift was meant to do. It was meant to be life-giving for marital union within the right context, but listen, outside of the right context, what was meant to be life-giving is actually life-taking. It's actually destructive. That's the idea that we see in scripture. Um, the illustration that I, I've, I've often thought of is the illustration of like fire and a fireplace, right? Like uh, if fire's sexual desire, we'll say fire's the desire, but the fireplace is the design, Now, I feel like for a lot of people, the reason why so many people run from the biblical vision of sexuality is because so much of the church throughout the ages has been like all fireplace, no fire. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I remember Brittany, like, you know, when we, when we first started dating, like, she would get, like, these really weird books, and I'd be like, don't read that. Don't read that book, okay? It's all fireplace, no fire, and that's often the idea about Christian, the Christian vision for sexuality, it's all fireplace, but there's no passion, there's no fun. We'll stop there. Um, But the scripture also speaks to an equally destructive vision, I'm sorry, probably a more destructive, definitely a more destructive vision that Jesus even points to here in this passage, and that's a fire without a fireplace. We know fire within the right context can bring life can make you a delicious s'more, okay? It can, warm, it can warm your hands, it can cook your food, but we also know that fire outside of the right context can bring great destruction. 
And that's what the language use, uh, that's the language of scripture that, for, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6 to describe sexual immorality, sin out, uh, sexual uh, activity outside of the marriage covenant. It's sinning, it's unlike, he says, any other sin. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, every other sin you commit against someone else, but in sexual sin, you're actually sinning against your own body. You're bringing destruction even to your own capacity to experience intimacy. It's interesting, this idea of how it destroys. Jesus alludes to it here. He, he alludes to, to how dangerous and how destructive the powers of hell are, both eternally for sin and presently for sin. Uh, I wanna, want you to see kind of to frame this and to get some, some biblical language around what I'm saying here, just to kind of piece all that I just said together. Hebrews 13.4 which says that this, this idea that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So this is the, the sexual ethic of scripture. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. Marriage is a gift for relational and co- covenantal intimacy and oneness, two becoming one. Outside of that marriage bed, sex, uh, sexuality is destructive, and, he dis- and, and the author of Hebrews describes sort of two veins of that. There's fornication and adultery. Adultery applies to a married individual who's engaging with sexual activity with someone who is not their spouse. That's adultery. That's what Jesus speaks of here in this passage. Uh, he also speaks of this biblical F word called fornication. Fornication in the Greek is the word porneo. It's, it can also be translated sexual immorality. It's where we get the word pornography from, porneo or, or prostitution. Um, porneo, is, which is, can be prostitution, with uh, the word pornography is just porno, porn, pornography, graphic. It's filmed or visual, graphic, uh, sexual immorality. That's the idea, porneo. Um, and, and in scripture, the word porneo, Paul uses it a lot. Even Jesus uses it here. Uh, Jesus, people say, Jesus never talked about sex or, or any of, of real vision for it. He speaks about it very clearly here. Jesus uses the word porneo here in verse 32. It's used there. And it's, it's, in scripture, it's kind of like a junk drawer for all the different kinds of sexual perversions that the enemy would bring into this world and that humanity would, would explore and, and so adultery, of course, is, is sexual activity with someone who's not my spouse, but fornication, it's this junk drawer for any sort of sexual activity. Even if you're not married, you can still commit sexual sin. Um, it's any sort of sexual engagement with someone who's not my spouse, and it's just this junk drawer of, of all sorts of different implications. Um, it's almost like God didn't take the time to list all the different perverted ways that we would, we would come to corrupt sexuality uh, through our sinful nature. So he just said, it's fornication. It's not my design. And the big idea behind this is a lot of people, they see God's commands and God's standards as limiting. But the vision of Jesus for sexuality is not boundary for the sake of limit, but boundary for the sake of liberation and freedom. See, true freedom is not found in being able to do whatever you want. That's actually a sense of slavery. There's a lack of faithfulness to that. It's, it's true freedom that's found within the confines of a standard. Think about the greatest cello player on earth, whoever you are. Your craft of playing that cello has come about through the discipline and having to say no to things to practice and the freedom to experience the beauty of that beautiful music doesn't come out of accident, it comes out of intention, right? Uh, Tim Keller used the illustration of a train on train tracks. 
okay? Those train tracks don't limit that train, okay? It actually brings that train to its destination and it prevents destruction from coming when that train is off the tracks. All that's for us to see the value of Jesus' own standard for sexuality. And we see again here in Hebrews this idea of fornication and adultery. Now those looking on who knew Jesus' standard at this point, what they were saying to themselves is, yeah, I'm faithful, Jesus. I got my woman. I've been a one-woman man since I was bar mitzvahed. And it's only been me for her. She's my beloved and I, and I am hers. I've never committed adultery. I have heard it said, I've read the, the law of Moses, do not commit adultery. I know the sexual standard of scripture and I haven't committed it. And Jesus wants us to become people who aren't just faithful in our behavior, but who are faithful in truth. So he says, okay, what about lust? Let's talk about lust. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, I haven't done it physically. Well, you've done it mentally. You've done it with your imagination. Jesus is constantly getting to this point that sin is not just what you do with your actions. Sin is the the motives of your heart. It's the thoughts of your heart. It's the intentions behind what you do. Your thought life matters. It's not just what you do, it's what you think, which is, by the way, the root of what you do. That's what Jesus is getting at. No one just wakes up and says, today I'm going to have an affair, right? Or or just slips and falls. There's usually preconceived ideas. There's discontent. There's lust is what he's talking about here. Um, This word lust, by the way, I want to specialize now or specify it. Um, now, notice Jesus, you know, this does apply, obviously, to women as well. Women, it's not just man who lusts. In fact, Eve, we saw, was the fall of man came through Eve lusting after the fruit. But Jesus here is specifically speaking to men. And so, I mean, it's going to obviously apply to all. But just what Jesus is saying here, he's speaking to men lusting after women. And the word lust there, it, it, the, it literally can be translated, uh, translated lustful intent, Okay, this word, it, it means to, uh, here's the idea, it's to commodify or objectify an individual, a person, for your own pleasure. Someone who's made in the image of God, you use as an image of sexuality for your own pleasure. It's to commodify someone, create, it's, it's to make someone into a product for your own pleasure, who's not your husband or wife. You can certainly be attracted to and enjoy in fullness your husband or wife. But the idea here is to have lustful intent. Now, let me say that this, this, uh, this doesn't mean that you can't acknowledge beauty. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't act like something's beautiful when it's not, whether it's a, a, a guy, a girl, a sunset, or the ocean, okay? Usually those can go hand in hand, and so you might want to avoid those. But, you know, you're at the, the beach, okay, be careful, okay? But this doesn't mean don't acknowledge beauty. This, 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 this actually should encourage us to, to, I think, moving into holiness is learning to see the image of God. Wow, what a, what a beautiful person that God made, the physical features of beauty on that person. Lustful intent is not acknowledging the beauty that God has, inher- has, has, has developed in someone. Lustful intent, again, is to commodify that person for your own pleasure. And Jesus says doing that is sin, okay? It's not the look it's the consistent look. It's the steady look. It's when that look goes to imagination. It's when that person is no longer bearing the image of God, but they are a product for your own viewing pleasure. 
That's why Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman lustfully. He knew the implications, and Jesus is saying, listen, lust is as destructive as adultery. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I look at porn every now and then, but I don't really, I'm still faithful to my wife, and no, you're not. Jesus says if you commit lust, if you have lustful intent, the sin there is adultery of the heart. You've already committed it in your heart. Now, let me say this, okay? This doesn't mean go ahead and go commit adultery now because you've already done it. That's not what that means, okay? There are, there are, you could say that there's greater consequences in the covenantal union that Jesus will talk about if that manifests and translates in the physical act. But what Jesus is saying here is that if that lust isn't unchecked, its natural state is to develop into the physical act. And even if it never does, your heart, who wants a broken heart? Who, 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 wants, who wants to just appear faithful on the outside and experience the brokenness of sin on the inside? Um, we know that, as I said, the fall of man, you know what it began with? It began with a look. That's what, it, that's what the Bible says, that Eve saw the fruit that it was pleasing to the eyes. That's what she saw. That's where the fall of man comes from. The scripture talks about in 1 John, the lust of the eyes. The idea here that Jesus is clearly getting at is the destructive nature of lust. So that we should be moving, listen closely, we should be moving from lust managers to lust eradicators. Just like two weeks ago when Jesus was talking about anger. In our culture, we have anger management. Jesus is like, no, 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 don't manage your anger, eradicate your anger. Don't manage your lust and excuse your lust and feed your lust and hide your lust, eradicate your lust. He, he tells us to go to extreme measures in the battle against sin because if you do not kill your sin, your sin will kill you. And so Jesus uses some of the most extreme language that we have from Jesus in all of his teaching. And he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We read a story of a one-eyed man, one-eyed Willie from the Goonies. Remember him? Not him. And the one-eyed man said, don't envy me. I've had one of my enemies removed. He would have killed me, all right? And so Jesus here is speaking about the extreme measures of, of if your eye causes you to sin or your hand causes you to sin, you can just take that wherever you want, okay? But Jesus is getting at the, 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 our body who are called to present to God as members of righteousness now. If, and, he, and obviously here, let me just say this, okay? Jesus, origin misunderstood Jesus here and actually acted upon physically um, preventing himself from sinning in this way without too much detail. Um, an old, an, an, a, a, a second or third century Christian. Uh, but Jesus is not telling us here to actually physically mutilate ourselves, okay? This is not self-mutilization, um, mutil, whatever it's called, okay? Is that the right word? Mutilation? <laughs> Mutilation? <laughs> that word that we all know, all right? Jesus is talking about how extreme our fight against sin must be. Maybe here's a modern translation, if your phone is causing you to sin, throw it in the ocean. If your coworker at work is causing you to sin, get a new job. And we'd go, that's too extreme. Jesus goes, no, I'm telling you to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. That's not that bad. 
The idea is we have to take a radical posture against eradicating and eliminating the sin of lust from our lives because of what it can produce and the destruction that it could bring. And man, I, I wish, really I made this whole sermon about this point because of how important it is in a lot of ways. But let me just give you a four-point battle strategy that I have employed that I would encourage you to employ. Uh, without a battle plan, you will fall. In fact, with a battle plan, you will fall. A righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. But if you can surround yourself with a biblical strategy in your fight against lust, you can, by the power of the Spirit, I just want you to know something. From, from a firsthand testimony, victory is possible. Freedom is available through Jesus. I don't know, I don't care how long you've been defeated. There is no defeat over which Jesus is not stronger and able to bring victory in your life. I don't care how great the shame is, his grace is greater. And here's what you need to do. You need to have a plan, a strategy. Here's uh, what I go by, these, these, these four eight words. These have helped me uh, in my battle against lust and sin. Number one, invite. You've got to invite. You've got to recognize that you cannot win this battle on your own. The idea here is don't do it alone. Be in community. Confess your sin to one another. Experience healing. You need other people preaching the gospel to, to you than just yourself. You, you need to be uh, obeying God's word and, and trusting in God's word and the promises that come through walking in the light. You have to confess your way into victory, not will your way into victory. It won't happen. Okay? Confession is the way that we take the enemy's head off. Not just through being good people. He knows that that's impossible. So he tries to get us to do, do good enough, be good enough. Confession, invite. Who have you, by the way, don't wait for people to show up. That's the key word here of invite. Go out of your way to confess. Confess your sin, not when someone asks you. If someone asks you, but confession is an active intention. Second is sight. Okay? This is a great, simple strategy. The Bible says in Ephesians 5 that we should walk circumspectly in these evil days. Walking circumspectly, speckly has to do with your perspective, your, 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 uh, your spectacles, these things. Okay, And in these eyes that are tempted to lust, they've got to be on guard. You have to be prepared. You've got to walk circumspectly. The idea of circumspectly is, think of circum, okay? the circumference. You've got to have a full 360 view of your life. As much as you're able to prepare, do what you can to be wise and walk in safe environments, okay? Uh, there's certain places you might want to avoid. There's certain bedrooms with closed doors you might want to avoid. There's certain TV shows and movies that, that for me, I, I know have the propensity to make me more lustful, and so I won't watch them. You have to know your weaknesses. You have to be humble enough to know that you don't have it in and of yourself. It's going to take walking circumspectly. Um, and, and can I say this? Jesus is talking about this here in this passage about the radical extents. You've got to be willing to look legalistic. Nobody wants to be legalistic these days because it's like, I get how dangerous that was in the subculture movement of the church for so long. So everyone's just like, yeah, grace, 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 grace. And we're all dying in sin under the name of grace. You have to be willing to look stupid to save your life and the life of the person you love. You've got to be willing. Following Jesus doesn't always mean looking cool to culture. Okay, newsflash, all right? You've got to be willing to be radical. That's confession. Maybe that's software on your computer. Being aware of your surroundings, walking circumspectly. Um, 
boyfriends and girlfriends. That's being wise about where you find yourself alone. That, that's, it's just the idea. Don't, don't put yourself in a situation that's going to tempt you to sin, okay? Uh, David should not have been on the rooftop of his, of, his th- of his palace where he could clearly get advantage of Bathsheba uh, bathing, all right? Um, that whole disaster could have been avoided if David circumnavigated his way around that problem. Okay, I got, I, I'm gonna preach on each one of these, so I gotta go fast. Okay, flight, all right? Guess what? You only have so much control over your environment. Uh, that's why you, you can have all the software and accountability in the world. At the end of the day, it's gonna come down to what Paul said to do in 1 Corinthians 6, to flee sexual morality. Okay, the word there is like run as, as if, if you don't win the race, you're gonna die, okay? If you don't win the race, you're going to die. Flee it. Uh, think of Joseph in, in uh, uh, Potiphar's house, right? Potiphar's, that's the guy. All right, and, 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 and Potiphar's wife, Joseph, lie with me. He's like, no. Every day, day after day. There's no way for this guy to walk circumspect. He's just got to be like, where's she at? She's on the rafter, you know, like she's after him. Lie with me, lie. And then one day, lie with me, you know. She like comes at him. And Joseph, the Bible says, flees her. Flees from her presence. I'm not kidding. I mean physically run. Get in your car. Get to the phone. Get in a hot shower. Or maybe that's not going to help you, okay? Jump in, the, <laughs> jump in the pool. Flee sexual immorality like you're running from a monster that's going to kill you, okay? All right, Flight. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I want to say, promises that with every temptation is a way of escape. With every temptation, you've got to look for the exit sign and run through it. Run through it. By the power of the Spirit, freedom is available. And lastly, I just say here for, is, is the idea of fight. Fight. Um, uh, it's Ephesians uh, chapter 6 that says to take, a whole, take up the whole, mar- a whole armor of God. That we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You gotta understand that, that the battle against lust is a spiritual battle. It's a battle that's won on your knees in prayer, with your nose in God's word, with your heart full of God's spirit, with your life full with God's people. It's a spiritual battle that can over be, only be won with spiritual weapons. There's no, unfortunately, that's what I found, there's no um, computer software for my mind. There's no account of, only you and God know what you're really thinking and what your thought life is like. You've got to wage this war in prayer. It's 1 Peter 2.11 that says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's how you have to think about it. Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. And there's a war that we're fighting in here. A war for our own faithfulness. A war for our own well-being, our spiritual well-being, um, the, the quality of our relationships. You know, I'm, I'm kind of torn what to do here. I think just for the sake of, of the next few weeks, I'm gonna brush through these next few points. It's 11, we usually end at this time. The good news is you're not sitting in an uncomfortable seat having to go get lunch. would encourage you to stick around. We're gonna, I'm gonna finish this out. Is that cool? Let's look at these next two, okay? I didn't get any head nods in the room, so I'm not, okay, okay, okay. all right. I think everyone's like, no, okay, but all right. <laughs> 
Uh, let's talk about covenantal faithfulness, okay? Greater faithfulness in covenantal faithfulness. Jesus talks about sexual faithfulness, which comes through the power of his spirit. Covenantal faithfulness is the next thing he talks about. And it's an interesting passage here where Jesus is talking about within the marriage relationship, uh, uh, he's talking about faithfulness in our vows. And, and he, he's talking in the, con- notice the word there, verse 31, furthermore. Okay, furthermore is used there because um, He's kind of, the idea there is he's, he's building on what he previously talked about, right? The destructive nature of sexual sin is what he was talking about here first. And so he says, furthermore, now he's going to talk about when that, that uh, destructive uh, sexual sin comes into a marriage relationship, and he's going to talk about how that can rip a marriage apart, how sexual immorality can, uh, it's, not, it's not just that it's biblical grounds for divorce, he, he obviously says that, but the idea that it can destroy a marriage from, from the inside out. Um, but he's speaking, listen, uh, we got to always remember this. When we read the Bible, I think this is one of the reasons why we're left with, with false conclusions about what Jesus has to say and what the Bible says. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make as 21st century Americans reading the Bible is we forget that though the Bible was written for us, the Bible was not written to us, okay? This is really important when you're reading your Bible. Well, that, you, you, we tend to act like it was written to me in my American context in the 21st century, and so we come to a verse like this, and we just see harsh words about marriage and divorce, and we just think about the American culture where the divorce rate's at 50%. And certainly, it's written for us, so it applies to us. But in that culture, Jesus was speaking to, in Jewish culture, a really uh, a unique, I would say uh, relatable and relevant, but, a, but a, a specific and broken understanding about marriage that came out of the Torah, that came out of the law. Here, when Jesus says, whoever divorces him, his life, let him, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus there is referring to the very law and words of Moses in Deuteronomy. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy, Moses had a permissive clause. It's Deuteronomy 24 that allowed for a marriage, a, a union, a covenantal uh, relationship, what, what God has brought together, let not men separate, and, and, and that's God's vision always for marriage, yet there was this permissive clause in Deuteronomy 24 that would free a, a man or a woman from their marriage if the, the person had become, um, the languages had become displeasing in the sight of their husband because of some kind of uncleanness. Now that's what it, it meant, and Jesus is unpacking that, that there's, there's this there's this severance that, that destroys the marriage relationship in sexual sin. Jesus is referring to that. Now, in that culture, there is a very broken understanding to the words of Moses. So you had some schools of thought that, no, actually, let me, let me just read it to you. In fact, in the, 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 the Living Bible translation, I want you to see how they translated this, which I would encourage the New King James. I'm not, I don't mean to bash the Living Bible, but... This is a horrible translation of Deuteronomy 24.1. If you wrote the Living Bible, I apologize, okay, for how bad it is, okay? But, um, but here's what Deuteronomy, this is how the Jews understood how, how poorly this was translated. Listen, listen to this verse, Deuteronomy 24.1. If a man doesn't like something about his wife, he may write a letter stating that he has divorced her. Give her the letter and send her away. Okay, now, New King James makes it a lot more clearer, talks about uncleanness and sin, and so 
Okay, I'm going to get off the living Bible for a second. But that's how the Jews understood that verse. They were like, if, if, a, if a man doesn't like something about his wife, so if he's a man, okay, you can switch it around. If a woman doesn't like something about her, her husband, now, Brittany has never been in that predicament, unfortunately, you know, fortunately for her, okay? But it looks like if there's something you don't like, easy out. Now, this was a big issue in theology of debate to where you had different schools, to where you had some schools of thought that um, were very strict about it, that even within, even if there was sexual immorality, you could never divorce your wife or, or there could never be this, the separation uh, of that covenant. But you had other extremes that, that took this verse to such great lengths to where um, in, in, I think it was the school of Hattel, uh, under that rabbi, if your wife burned your breakfast... You had biblical grounds to divorce her. Okay, so anyway, this, let me say this. But I say to you, Jesus says, that whoever divorces his wife, notice this phrase, for any reason. For any reason. Matthew 19, the, uh, the, Jesus expounds on this more when they come to Jesus and they say, hey, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Same idea. Didn't Moses say that? And Jesus is going, your interpretation's all off of what Moses is saying. What Moses is saying is there's not any reason, there's a reason, sexual immorality. And, and, and Paul will go on to unpack some more, um, so, some more cases where divorce is the outcome uh, within marriage. And it has a lot to do with believers and married to non-believers and vice versa. Um, but the point is, the point is, let me say this. Jesus is speaking not to the law, but the heart and he's saying, you're missing the vi- God's vision for marriage altogether because all you're trying to do is find any reason to get out of it. Let me say that if you're married and all it takes is any reason to, to, to be divorced, you will find a reason. If, you, if you're married long enough, there will always be some kind of reason that you can find. Now, Jesus says there are cases, but Jesus is speaking. He's saying, listen, if you're always looking for the way out, you are far from the heart of God with marriage. Marriage doesn't exist to be some consumer contract where two hopefully stay around long enough, pleasing each other, making each other happy. But the second the goods and services are not provided, we can go on to the next cell phone provider get a new contract. Marriage is not a contractual agreement. It's a covenantal union that's existing, that's meant to reflect ultimately the vision for marriage as it reflects God for, God's love for his people, for the church. And that's not just the, a Christian thing. That's an Old Testament thing. That's God telling Hosea, go marry Gomer and love her even through her sexual immorality. Love her and redeem her and buy her back over against all of her sin. In doing so, you're going to reflect my covenantal love for Israel. And we know that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, right? The vision for the church in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church, nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul says this is a, a mystery that I'm speaking of. It's a, re- it's a revealed, uh, it's a revelation of God, something that's kind of hidden and mysterious, but God has made visible through the church that when a husband loves his wife and, and it's based on his commitment to her, not her lovability, 
And when a wife respects and submits to her husband and follows his leadership, not because he's always a great leader, but because she's ultimately following God, when a couple lives that way, they exist as a mirror to the world of God's love. All right, aren't you and I glad that God isn't looking for any reason to leave us? Because I've given him plenty by now. Anybody else? Okay. I've given him every reason. But that's what marriage exists to be. Not this contract where hopefully two people are making the other happy. But if for any reason they're not, we're going to find our way out. But no, the heart of it is to reflect the covenantal love and faithfulness of God. So much so that a husband is to love his wife even the way Christ has loved the church. Okay. Lastly, verbal faithfulness. We have sexual faithfulness, which is 75% of this sermon, covenantal faithfulness, which is about 5 to 10%, and I think we'll go with another 5% here for verbal faithfulness. I'm just, I don't know why I'm being so weird with that, okay, but here's what Jesus ends with. He talks about oaths. He talks about um, a, a relationship between two parties that is depending on each other's faithfulness. So whether it was over some dispute with where you could put a fence up between two farmers' properties or what belonged to who or, or whatever the case may be. If it was civil, relational, whatever it may be. Um, the goal would be that two people could trust each other's word of, of what the resolution would be. And in that culture, you had all sorts of finagling around the law of God. Because remember, the Pharisees, they would just try to, as long as, it's almost like, how can I obey God's word with getting away with as much as possible? Right? Like, how can, I, how can I be obedient but still do what I want to do at the same time? That's how a lot of people can approach a very unhealthy and proud posture um, that God does not honor. Okay? But that was the posture of a lot of people in that culture. And so they, they wouldn't, if they had to make a promise, what they would do is they would just swear on something other than the Lord's name. Because as long as they don't swear on the Lord's name, they can break it. Yeah, yeah, sure, I swear on, on that rock. All right, I'll be as faithful as that rock. I swear on your sandal, okay, your sandal, not even mine, okay? Like, and, and, and Jesus goes, you're missing the heart of faithfulness. It's not what you're swearing upon. It's your ability to be faithful to what you promise. And so he, he says, listen, don't swear by anything. Don't swear by, what does he say? Uh, don't swear by heaven, by earth, by the city of Jerusalem. I love this. Don't swear by your head because you can't control how gray you're getting. I love that he says that. Because you cannot make one hair white or black. This is, of course, before just for men. All right. But you get the idea. Don't, don't swear by anything earthly, anything faulty. Here's greater faithfulness. Not how powerful and profound your promises are, but how visible and trustworthy your keeping of those promises is. So he says, instead, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. I love this verbal faithfulness. Uh, just be someone who knows when to say yes and also someone who knows when to say no. I want to say that that's really important as well when it comes to faithfulness. You know, sometimes the most faithful thing you can do is say no. Because every, um, every yes is a thousand no's, Right? Sometimes people get offended when I say, when they like need something and I'll, and I'll say, as the pastor, I'll say, they'll kind of expect that it's just always a yes, right? Like, 
you're, you're my indentured servant, right? So like, yes, you know? And, it's, and sometimes it's, it's a simple, no, I can't do that. And obviously, it's not just like ever, right? Yeah, how about this day? But for me, I, I, I have to learn in ministry especially that I'm primarily called to my, my wife and my kids. So I've had to learn that the most faithful thing that I can do is say no so that I can say yes to my family. But what, what Jesus is getting at here is not just knowing when to say yes and when to say no, but when you know when, you're able to actually fulfill your commitments, not say yes, that, that happened yesterday where we, we kind of had a couple, uh, a couple multiple commitments on 4th of July with our family and the best thing to do was to be faithful to them. Let, let's show up when we can. Let, let's, let's do our best to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Uh, now I want to say this. Um, nobody does this perfectly, okay? But the, the motivation for this is how perfect God is in his faithfulness. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with the church being frustrated with his uh, unfaithfulness to show up when he said he would be there. He told them, I re- I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna see you again. Now, circumstances prevented him. And, and so Paul says this, though. He says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. I love that Paul says this. He goes, listen, I'm gonna let you down. Here's what you can know, that God, he's always faithful. I love that. He says, for all the promises of God in him are yes, all the promises of Andrew, all the promises of Paul, all your promises are not always yes. Sometimes they're no, but in him they are yes and amen. Notice this though, to the glory of God through us. And this is where we close with this idea of faithfulness. Uh, yeah, we're called to be those that are faithful, those who keep our word, who let our yes be yes and our no be no. We're called certainly to faithfulness in our sexuality, faithfulness in our love for our spouses, faithfulness in our promises. But though you've had other people maybe define you by your unfaithfulness, the gospel says that you're defined by someone else's faithfulness. You're defined by God's faithfulness. The basis of your standing in your relationship with God is not your faithfulness, your broken faithfulness, my broken faithfulness, but it's God's faithfulness. All the promises of God are yes and amen. He's faithful. Scripture says in 2 Timothy that when we are even faithless, God remains faithful. I don't know if there is a more powerful motivator and producer of faithfulness in our lives than to absorb and receive and be saturated with the truth of God's faithfulness. As we, as we receive his faithfulness, we're made to be more faithful. He makes us to be faithful in, in a greater way. So if today you're thinking about your sexuality and maybe your sexual unfaithfulness, and right now there's this sort of whisper of condemnation. God's faithful. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if you've been unfaithful sexually, seek your refuge, seek your hope in the one who is tempted in all points but is faithful. And you're in him. You're not defined by your sexual failures. You're defined by the faithfulness of Jesus. If you have a, a history in marriage of unfaithfulness, of breaking promises, of, of running away and there's no way to get back what you left. Look to the faithful one. The Bible says that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. You can trust in him. And when you are constantly failing to keep your promises, look to the one who never does.
He never fails. He's our hope. It's his faithfulness that's the source of our lives. Let's worship him for that.